Uh, The reading today is taken from Hebrews chapter 12, um, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as a discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. I'm going to pray. Yeah, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather together in this building in fellowship with one another. Uh, we thank you for, for bringing us together, uh, whether we've had a, an easy week or a hard week or an average week. Um, we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what Peter has to say to us. And I pray for Peter that the words that he would give us would be not his words, but would be your words inspired by your spirit. Um, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. And um, uh, let me say at the outset um, a, a, a sort of slight apology. Uh, this, uh, you, if you looked at, if you noticed the program, what we're going to look at uh, this morning was originally planned to be in two sermons, um, but there were some timetabling issues, and so it got condensed into one. Frankly, when I was planning the series, it, um, I was already condensing three or four sermons into. Uh, into two, and this is an important moment in our church's life. Um, uh, so it, it may feel slightly long. I think it also may feel like we're skating over some issues. Um, I certainly feel that we are. Um, we entitled the series in Hebrews, Facing the Coming Storm. I actually nicked that, or at least the phrase, the coming storm, from a BBC podcast that was um, uh, done not so long ago by um, Gabriel Gatehouse, who's a, um, a great reporter, reporting on um, how the, the storm that for a moment engulfed uh, the White House January, uh, in January the 6th, um, and the storming of the White House, how that, uh, that built in American society. It was describing the QAnon and various other things that some of you may know about. I was conscious that actually using that title um, to summarise Hebrews had the danger of sort of over-egging the pudding, so to speak. Um, The world that the Hebrews faced was much, much more vicious than uh, our world today. The author who was writing to this letter to the Hebrews had an inkling at least when he said you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood had an inkling that uh, that Christians in Rome where this was probably written would soon be executed and the truth 
of that became abundantly clear not that long later. Um, some of you know the story. Nero scapegoated the Christians for the, the fire of Rome and did terrible things to them, including lighting them on poles so that they were lit torches where he showed his guests around illuminating his gardens. That is not the situation that we are in by any means. And uh, therefore, we must read this letter to the Hebrews, um, perhaps with great thankfulness that what they were being called to is far, far more difficult than anything that we are likely to be called to unless we go to northern Nigeria or other parts of the southern Sahel in Africa or, um, or North Vietnam or other places where Christians today do lose their lives. But that is not us. On the other hand, I was aware that we are in a moment of cultural turmoil. I was deeply aware and am deeply aware that uh, we are uh, in a moment when, when society has shifted somewhat and that there is more determined opposition to historic Christianity in the Western world than there ever was. On the 9th of February, um, for instance, just a few days ago, um, many Anglican friends, Church of England friends, um, described that day as a moment when the Anglican Church crossed a Rubicon because on that day, General Synod of the Anglican Church decided to vote um, to allow the blessing of same-sex relationships and therefore to relativise the historic teaching of just about every church tradition for 99% of uh, the history of the church that sex and marriage are in God's plan for one man and for one woman. And they described that as a decisive turn that the Anglican church had taken. We're not the Anglican church. Um, but it does have implications for us. Not least, it's now entirely understandable that an average person who knows very little about Christianity and the church should, should um, uh, conclude that historic teaching on sex and marriage is at best an optional um, uh, thing for Christians today not a central part of Christians, Christianity's historic teaching. And that means that churches like us inevitably get treated with greater suspicion. As I reflected on that and on this morning, I also reflected that um, uh, the median age in the church is nearly 40 years younger than me. And uh, I am speaking to people, the majority of whom have got more than 40 years of Christian discipleship ahead of you. And I have no doubt in my mind that the next 40 years, though I will be in glory, hopefully, by um, the end of it, I mean, hopefully, because I don't want to stay here below for, uh, for till I'm 100. Thank you very much. <laughs> that you will have decades of discipleship ahead of you. So how are we going to live then? As ordinary people, good people, people who haven't... Who haven't um, thought very deeply about it, uh, just have been taught that people who believe the historic teachings of the Bible are to be treated with suspicion, where some people are very, very angry. How are we going to live? Well, our author has been telling us 
from the beginning of his letter. But here he brings it to something of a summary and a climax. And so I want to just look at how he describes the Christian life in three different ways. First of all, he said, living as a Christian is about believing witnesses. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There is, he says, and he's been, re he's been rehearsing it in Hebrews 11, there, there is a great cloud of people who are walking the same path as you, who are following the same God as you, who are trusting the same promises as you. And their examples are really, really important to learn. They stand, in a sense, around us as a throng of witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses. We saw it, didn't we? Uh, let, me, let me remind you, Abel, the son of uh, Adam and Eve, Abel was commended as righteous, we're told. He was right with God simply because of his faith. Didn't go so well for him at the hands of his brother. But from eternity's point of view, that was not the issue. He was a man who was right with God. Enoch found eternal life in some mysterious way that is described in Genesis because of his faith. Noah believed there was a judgment and did something about it when people thought he was pretty silly. And um, in the end, Noah was the one who was proved right. Abraham believed there was a better home and set out from the secure, comfortable home that he was in following God. Moses believed that disgrace for the Christ, sake of Christ was of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt and so was prepared to stand up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And on he goes and he says, I haven't got time to tell you about them all because there are so many witnesses from beginning to end who have a common, common uh, message to us. And they can be interrogated. You know, Abraham, you're standing here. You were told to set out from Ur and to go to a land and to live in tents. Was that easy? Was that an obvious life decision? Was that um, the best career move you could have made? No. Abraham, what was it like trusting God that you would be the father of many nations, that all peoples would be blessed by you when you frankly had difficulty even conceiving one son, let alone blessing an innumerable uh, number? It was tough. I, I, I wobbled at times. I went down to Egypt. I had a semi-legitimate son. But slowly and faithfully, God kept me and he trained me to trust him. Abraham, now you're at home in glory. What would you say to me? I would say, says Abraham, I didn't see it, but you have. You've seen from one man an innumerable number of people blessed. You've seen the, the gospel spread over uh, every tribe and nation. You have seen millions upon millions upon millions of people find life and righteousness and joy and satisfaction. If I can trust him, so can you. In the Bible, you see, there is witness after witness after witness after witness. And for so many of them, from where we stand, we can see that what they trusted was precisely what God brought about. Will you, 
believe them. Will you take action? Will you stand firm and clear? Will you, as our author says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us? Um, Tom gave us this picture of the runner running a race. The sin that entangles, interestingly, in Hebrews is not particularly the sins that we think about or the, the ones that, that rest heavy on our heart, whatever they are, They're our personal sins of lust or anger or greed or pride or, or, or whatever. I mean, they're important in the Bible. But what this letter is presenting to us is the sin of not truly trusting Jesus, the sin of not being prepared to stand up and accept that not everyone will love us for it. He'll put it at the end of his letter as, as like Jesus, who was taken outside of the city, being prepared to ourselves be taken outside of the city, outside of the community of God's people. That's where he's been driving. Just as every, witness, uh, every one of those witnesses had to, one way or another. Abraham leaving his home. Moses speaking against his childhood home. Noah anticipating the judgment. And on and on it goes. And it must be run with perseverance. It is a marathon, not a sprint. I don't want to see people running with, with uh, youthful enthusiasm and not laying down patterns that will last a lifetime that's what we're doing here in this church as we think about 40 years ahead of you will you run with perseverance will you believe the witnesses The second image that our writer gives us is, uh, I'm going to use the title for it to help you to remember it, which I'll explain in a minute, Stalking Joy. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For every believer, Jesus is absolutely central. He is, says our author, the, the pioneer that, that's an interesting word. It can be used um, in various ways for, for sort of establisher, instigator, and so on. But it, but it gets used as well in another way in the Bible that may, it may have overtones here. It can mean champion. And there's a story in the Old Testament that has champions who are set up, who, uh, where the same word is used. The champions are David and Goliath. And Goliath says, fight me with one of your men, and whoever wins, that will be considered the outcome for our whole respective nations. And so David and Goliath stand as champions as representatives 
And it may well be that our author has that idea in mind when he calls Jesus our pioneer, our champion. He has gone out for us into the battlefield. He has won our victories. He has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He has been raised from the dead as the firstborn from among the dead. And we, like the nation of Israel, when David won his battle against Goliath, we are the beneficiaries of that. He is the champion of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith, the, the completer, that word has the, has the sense of. In other words, all the others, all those great cloud of witnesses before, there were good things that we can learn from them, great things, but they only knew a certain amount. And in fact, frankly, they lived up to God's ideals only to a certain extent. But then you have Jesus then you have the man who is absolutely perfect. The man who not only lives the perfect human life, but he brings to its climax and its fruition and its completion what all of those earlier people longed for and looked forward to and saw through in a cloudy way. But now here he is. As Jesus says in John chapter 12, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Because when he's lifted up on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sins. He defeats the power of death. And he gives a focus of faith. Now, not just to Israelites, but to people from every tribe and nation throughout the world. He is the perfecter of our faith and here he is how does he live says our author what what drives him he is searching for joy stalking joy is a phrase that comes from the uh, uh, the writer Flannery O'Connor she she wrote to a friend and she said, picture me with ground teeth, stalking joy, fully armed too, as it's a highly dangerous quest. Now, actually, all human beings are always seeking joy. They are always making their decisions and uh, doing, doing whatever they do with a sense of their greater joy and contentment and so on. That, it, it is impossible for us to do anything else. But what Jesus is doing is he's stalking true joy. And as Flannery O'Connor says, it is a dangerous quest. There is the enemy of our souls who would distract us. You can't read Jesus's life without seeing that temptation uh, at beginning and end of his life in particular, to go for something else. But he's not deterred. And for the joy set before him, he embraces the cross. Satan loves to... To tempt us, he loved to tempt Moses with the glittering prizes and he will tempt you as well. He loves to terrorize us with monstrous threats about what you'll do if you continue to follow Jesus and he will try to terrorize you too. He loves to confuse us and to blind us and dis disorient us and, and, and make us think that we don't know truth from, from falsehood and that we may need to reevaluate re what the Bible says and he will do that to you too. But we have Jesus, our, our pioneer joy seeker. He was not a masochist when he went to the cross. He didn't enjoy that pain. But he was prepared to endure it for the joy set before him. 
Notice the key thing that is picked out that might have stopped him. Jesus is described as scorning its shame. The Western world, the world that most of us at least have, uh, uh, have grown up in, has, has gone through a long period where, where shame was very much subordinated to guilt in our culture and, and for some good reasons in some ways. Guilt, guilt is different from shame at least as I understand it, in, the, in this way. Guilt is an inner objective sense that I'm in the wrong, I deserve punishment, I deserve perhaps even condemnation. It's a, it's a word from the, guilt, from, from the courtroom. You are found guilty. Shame is social. Shame is an inner sense that of that I am disgraceful in social com uh, company. I, 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 I am disreputable. I should be ostracized or I should meet people's opprobrium. If you're pronounced guilty, you're locked up in prison as a punishment. But there was an older way of punishing people in Britain when shame was more prominent. <laughs> People would be publicly disgraced. You'll see it in a few villages around the public stocks. Because the point there was not so much objective punishment, but the social opprobrium and separation that a person endured as they were in the stocks and people hurled rotten fruit at them or whatever. Shame is back on the agenda in our culture in a big way. Shame drives people more profoundly than it did in generations and even centuries in the Western world gone by. But shame is absolutely at the heart of the biblical world. What happened to Jesus on the cross, you see, was not locking him away in a lonely prison cell to endure his punishment. It was displaying him naked, immobilized, vulnerable, to allow people as they did to pass by and mock him. And show their utter disgust at him. And it was that that he scorned. Not even that was going to stop him in his journey to joy. And it is that that we need to learn to scorn to. Some of you will know that I have had a brief moment of fame in Twitter in the not-too-distant past um, at the hands of someone with the delightful title of Bigot Shamer. Well chosen. John Chrysostom was Archbishop of Constantinople in the, the fifth century, a world that was much more alert to issues of shame. And he was brought before a lady called Eudoxia, who was the Emperor, the Roman em emperor, Empire was ru ruled at that time from Constantinople. And the emperor's wife um, was not his best friend, should we say that? And um, she threatens Chrysostom with banishment, to which he replies, you cannot banish me. 
for this world is my house. But I will kill you, the empress said. No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, says Eudoxia. No, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left, she said. No, you cannot, said John. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. Most of us are held captive one way or another by shame or the fear of shame. We stay quiet in the workplace because we don't want to be mocked or to have our future employment compromised. We marginalize our faith in relationships because um, we know friends would at least despise us a little bit, probably worse. I can remember as a, a, a student being taken out for dinner by a, a lovely university lecturer. Um, a few of us were taken out and she was, uh, she was chatting away. She, she uh, found out that I was a Christian. I haven't particularly volunteered it as I remember. Um, and she said, oh, she said, that's fine. She said, I love, I, I love Christians. It's those born-again Christians I really hate. I stayed quiet. We uh, pull our punches. Perhaps when some of you are writing an essay. I know someone who had to write an essay on Dante. Dante, Dante was um, a, a, a believing man. Um, and um, it was in a university that's not quite as old as this one, but very august. And um, she was marked down for not including in her essay the truth that God doesn't exist. And dare I say it, we are tempted to join a church that will minimise our sense of shame. Over the next 40 years, for you, it will be, I suspect, Satan's most potent weapon. And people will be dragged away from the true joy that is found in Jesus. The true joy that Jesus himself followed. Because they haven't learned to scorn shame. Your life and mine will be about believing the witnesses and acting on it. It will be about stalking joy and not being distracted from it as our master Jesus did. And lastly, it will be about a trusting, trusting God's love. Have you completely, verse 5, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Remember, what he is preparing them for is, uh, is persecution from the Roman authorities. So it's easy when we read discipline to see, see it as God's disciplining us for some particular sin or whatever that we may have, um, uh, have committed and God uh, sometimes does that. But, 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 it, but this passage is making a much wider point. 
It's making the point that all of the troubles in life, including the troubles that are going to come upon these Christians in Rome in the not-too-distant future, through no fault of their own, are actually in the extraordinary alchemy of how God works in this world, used also as a training ground for our good. Doesn't mean to say, for instance, that those persecutions that the Christians in Rome are going to face was actually only good. No, there is evil at work, and the Bible is quite clear about it. But the Bible is equally clear that God has this extraordinary ability to stand as sovereign even over those evil things and use them in our lives for our good. (coughs) Endure hardship as discipline, he says, verse 7. God is treating you as his children. What children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters uh, at all. It is so often the step-parents who abuse children. When you read it in the news, the step parents who show no interest in them and neglect them. Thank the Lord, it is much rarer for true parents to fail their children in the dramatic ways that get into the newspaper. And that's what he's getting at here. He's saying that, that, that actually God would be a neglectful, in fact, indeed, not even a, perhaps a true father if he wasn't on your case. Verse 9, moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? There's a poignancy in, in my heart as I read that because I know. I've heard some of your stories. I know that not everyone had good parenting. And that hurts. I know that there will be people here who have learned actually not to respect their parents in the way that they would love to. Verse 10 comes some way to acknowledging that human parenting is not a perfect model. They disciplined us, he says, for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. In other words, he's saying, whatever your experience is good and bad of your parents, and every single person will have a mixture, some a more painful mixture than others. Whatever your personal experience is, your God is your perfect father if you have put your faith in him. Here are some elements of his good fathering that this passage picks out. Just three to give you a flavour. The most important is the first one. God does not punish us. Now this one is important for us to to get, particularly if you were brought up as I was on the 1984 the um, translation of the NIV, which says, Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. But every translation, more or less, that I could find, both before and since, has recognized that it's not quite that word, and the NIV now has chosen, uh, chastens. That was a misstep in terms of the understanding of the language, but it was actually quite an important theological misstep. Because you see, punishment is about I have done wrong and there's a penalty that I must pay. There is a payment that I must make. And it is absolutely central to the Christian faith that Jesus paid for every last sin that we ever committed. Fully, completely, 
There is nothing more to pay. So in that sense, you see, God's fathering of us is different from our parents and parenting of us because we have an older brother in the family, Jesus, who has paid every, every penalty. So whereas actually, rightly, our uh, parent may have said, you're going to pay for this when you did whatever, God never will. God's sovereignty in bringing and allowing good, uh, bad things that happen to us, difficult things that happen to us, is never a punishment, whether it's related to a specific sin of ours or not, is never a punishment, but can be a correction, can be a training, can be to redirect us away from some false pleasure and, to, and towards the only pleasure that matters, which is him. To redirect us away from, from all of those those foolish things that Tom was illustrating that we, that, that, we, uh, that we encumber ourselves with and bring us back to that father-child relationship to him. In the story of the prodigal son, one of the most surprising things that happens in the story of the prodigal son is that when the son asks for his inheritance before his dad has died, the dad says, okay. The dad says, okay, you just, this is not in the text, but it's my subtext. You're going to have to learn it the hard way. But the father was always there scanning the horizon. He was always looking for his son. And when he saw the first inkling of his son, the least inkling of his son, he ran to him and embraced him. Because he was not punishing his son. His aim at every point was for his son to come back to him and to be embraced by his love. God does not and will not punish you if you have put your faith in Jesus. God does not and will not withdraw his love. This is the burden of the passage. He disciplines the one he loves. He chastens the ones, he, the one verse six, he accepts his discipline um, proves, I've already said, we are fully his children. He does not withdraw his love. Now, we, our experience of parenting sometimes was a, a, of ambivalent parenting. And we developed what um, people who, uh, um, psychologists talk about attachment theory, ambivalent attachments to our parents. Because either on our side or on their side or on both, we're not totally secure in their unbreakable love we can be utterly secure in God's unbreakable love he will never walk away from us God is not will not punish us God will not walk away from us God will work for our good they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, verse 10. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Here it is. His fatherly care is for our whole lives, not just for a little while. It is not as just as he as an imperfect person thinks best. It is perfect and it is for our good. To make us holy, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son, to be shaped into the beautiful human being that we were meant to be. He is working for our good. To bring us a rich harvest of righteousness, as he says. He is working for our fruitfulness. To give us peace, he says.
Now, I'm conscious that the things that I have talked about now are frankly the whole of your life. Are you going to believe the witnesses? Are you going to stalk that joy and not be, not be pushed aside or intimidated by shame? Are you going to learn to trust a God whose fatherly love is absolutely unbreakable for you through difficult times and he is having to warn people who will soon shed their blood? It's the whole of my life too. And the question is, is that the life that I am prepared to embark upon? That I am prepared to run with perseverance? That I am prepared to live for? It is the most important question for your whole life. And it will shape your life in ways more profound than you can ever imagine. Will you live that way? And will we be a church that not only calls people, to that most complete and full and joyful life that you could ever imagine. But looks after them and cares for them and nurtures them. Look at verse 12. Therefore strengthen feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Strengthen feeble arms that have just become tired and weary of doing good. Strengthen weak knees of the person who's just got tired of standing for Jesus and is about to collapse. Clear people's paths so that they don't stumble because this world is, 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 a, is an obstacle course, uh, frankly. And welcome those who are lame, who have been damaged by their experience of this world, which frankly is us all, isn't it? And don't treat them in a way that turns that lameness into a permanent disability. But heal them. Will we be that kind of church? I want to say to you, um, as far as I can see the future, I'm committed to being that pastor of that kind of church and living that kind of life for the rest of my life. I want to say to you that 10 years of Trinity's life has been rich, challenging, difficult, wonderful. And 30 years of ministry in total has been all of those things as well. And in 40 years' time, I hope I'm in glory. But in 40 years' time, I pray you'll remember this day. to take on our lips the 
and into our minds the idea that you are our Heavenly Father, Lord. is an extraordinarily profound thing. To imagine that we could be on the same journey of Jesus. Stalking joy is a wonderful thing. To think that we are part of an innumerable throng, every witness in a great and wonderful chorus saying it's worth it is a comforting thing. So Lord, in a moment of silence before you, we say please, Father of our spirits, please, risen Lord Jesus, pioneer and perfecter of our faith, please shape us. And Lord, we pray that what we have prayed for ourselves now will be the characteristic of our lives day after week, after month, after year, after decade. So that we too, Lord, see a harvest of righteousness. And find a deep place of peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.